This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Robert Wan? Robert Wan was born in Manhattan on June 1, 1974. He was raised in Brooklyn, New York. Robert graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1996 and went on to the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he would graduate with a Juris Doctor degree in 1999. He was a law clerk and then worked as a commercial real estate attorney in Washington, D.C. In June of 2003, Robert married a woman named Catherine. They lived in Oakton, Virginia not far from Washington, D.C. In June of 2006, Robert took a job as general counsel for a nonprofit called Radio Free Asia, which was based in Washington. Robert had three friends who lived only a mile away from his employer in a row house on 1509 Swan Street. Their names were Joseph Price, Victor Saborski, and Dylan Ward. Joseph and Victor considered themselves partners, Joseph and Dylan had also been partners at various times. This was a polyamorous relationship. The trio referred to themselves as a family. Evidently, in the relationship between Joseph and Dylan, Dylan was dominant and Joseph was submissive. I will refer to the row house that they lived in as the Price Residence. On August 2, 2006, Robert traveled to the Price Residence with the intent of staying there overnight. He arrived sometime around 10.30 p.m. The house was only about a mile from where he worked. This visit was planned two weeks in advance. Robert knew he would be working late that particular night and did not want to commute back to Oakton, Virginia. Robert knew Joseph Price. They had gone to college together. He had also met the other men in the house prior to that night. Not long after Robert arrived, he took a shower and went to bed. A neighbor reported hearing someone inside the house scream sometime between 11 and 11.30 p.m. The neighbor knew this was the time range because they had been watching a news show that aired from 11 to 11.30. Victor called 911 at 11.49 p.m. Paramedics arrived at 11.54 p.m. and the police were only a few minutes behind them. The paramedics encountered Joseph, Victor, and Dylan. Joseph was described as dismissive, arrogant, aggressive, and self-centered. Victor was tearful, hysterical, and unmotivated to help. Dylan was described as patient, calm, distant, and detached. Robert was found unresponsive on a pull-out couch in a second-floor bedroom of the house. Three stab wounds were found in his chest and abdomen. There was no blood coming out of the wounds. He was transported to the hospital and pronounced dead at 12.24 a.m. on August 3. The police found a bloody knife on a nightstand next to the couch where Robert's body was found. The three men claimed that an intruder must have killed Robert, but none of them saw anything. They denied having anything to do with the murder and denied being in any type of sexual relationship with Robert. They initially spoke to the police without an attorney. The police, of course, believed that one or more of the men were responsible for Robert's murder. 
There was no forced entry into the house. The story about the intruder did not make sense. The police spent weeks searching the house thoroughly. They removed sections of the walls, a staircase, the flooring. They really took the house apart looking for evidence. As I mentioned, Robert had been stabbed to death. Investigators would later come to believe that in addition to being stabbed, someone tried to suffocate him with a pillow and injected him with some type of drug. Three months after the murder, the Price residence was burglarized. Over $7,000 worth of electronic equipment was stolen. The police charged Joseph's brother Michael and a man named Phelps Collins with the burglary, but then the charges were dropped. The police would later say that they were just about to make an arrest in the murder case, but the burglary disrupted their plans. The police never said who they were going to arrest or what the charges would be. After this, nothing really happened with the case until October of 2008, when Dylan Ward was charged with obstruction of justice. He didn't live in Washington, D.C. anymore. Rather, he was arrested in Florida, where he lived in a house owned by Joseph Price. The next month, Joseph and Victor were also arrested for the same charge. All three men were eventually charged with conspiracy and tampering with evidence as well. The charges were based on the idea that the three men had lied to investigators, tampered with the crime scene, delayed reporting of the murder, and planted evidence. Joseph, Victor, and Dylan were found not guilty on all charges after a bench trial, so a judge decided their fate. The judge said that she believed the men knew who killed Robert, and she did not believe there was an intruder, but she was not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that they were guilty of the charges brought against them. Robert's widow had filed a civil suit against the men not long after the criminal charges were filed. The case settled in 2011, with the men paying an undisclosed amount of money. Now moving to my analysis. Joseph, Victor, and Dylan were never charged with murder. No one has ever been charged for killing Robert. Many people suspect the trio was involved, including the judge who acquitted him in their trial for obstruction, but there are a lot of difficulties with this case. When there are multiple people in a house where a crime is committed, sometimes it is difficult to figure out who was involved and who was not. There are five main possibilities about what happened in this case. One, an unknown intruder was guilty. This is the story maintained by the men. Two, a perpetrator who knew the men was guilty. So this could have been an intruder or somebody they let into the house. Three, only one or two of the men were involved in the murder, but everybody was at least an accessory after the fact. Four, one or two men committed the murder, and one or two men maintained complete innocence. And five, all three of the men were involved with the murder. Under theories two through five, at least some of the men committed a crime. So let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that one of these theories is true. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. 
I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Starting with the inculpatory evidence. Somebody screamed in the house between 11 and 11.30 p.m., yet the police were not called until 11.49 p.m. The police believe it was Victor who screamed, but it doesn't matter who it was. The screams suggest that something bad happened several minutes before the police were called. Why did it take so long to call the police? Perhaps the men needed to get their stories straight before the police arrived. Paramedics said that Robert appeared to have been dead for some period of time, but they didn't know how long. There was no blood coming from his wounds, as I mentioned. There was no blood coming from his wounds, and it looked like somebody had wiped blood off of his chest with a towel. The paramedics thought that Robert had been showered, dressed, and placed back in the bed, which is something dead people typically don't do for themselves. The 911 operator told Victor to apply pressure on Robert's chest using a towel. Victor said his partner was doing that, referring to Joseph. A bloody towel was found at the crime scene, but the pattern of blood on it was inconsistent with applying pressure. A cadaver dog trained to detect human blood gave an alert at the lint trap of the dryer and a drain in the courtyard. An uncoiled hose was next to the drain, like somebody pulled it out and never put it back. This stood out because the house was exceptionally neat and tidy in every other way. Perhaps somebody rinsed clothing over the drain and then dried the clothes in the dryer. A knife that was missing from Dylan's room was more consistent with Robert's injuries than the knife that was found next to his body. Investigators said that the knife found near the body was from the kitchen and had been smeared with blood, but it wasn't the murder weapon. The wounds sustained by Robert were only four to five inches deep, but the blood on the knife covered the entire blade, which was five and a half inches long. Another knife that was missing from a set in Dylan's bedroom was four and a half inches long. It doesn't really make sense why anybody would switch the knives, but this was the theory that the police had. Robert had needle puncture marks on his body that occurred before he was murdered. He had not received any medical care consistent with those injuries. Perhaps he was injected with some type of drug to decrease or eliminate resistance to attack. The autopsy indicated somebody may have tried to suffocate Robert. Perhaps they were not successful in doing that, and that's why they resorted to using a knife, or he was suffocated at the same time as he was being stabbed. Robert may have been the victim of an assault of a sexual nature. His semen was found in his own rectum. The police implied that Dylan had restraints in his room, as well as a substantial number of items designed to be inserted into an anal cavity. Robert did not have any defensive wounds on his body, suggesting he was incapacitated when he was attacked. The intruder story does not seem to be plausible. The Price residence was a three-story row house. Joseph and Victor said they went to bed in their bedroom on the third floor. Dylan went to bed in his bedroom on the second floor, and Robert was in the guest room on the second floor. The intruder would have had to climb over an eight-foot fence in the backyard, enter through the back door, which they magically knew was unlocked, 
go to the kitchen and get a knife. They apparently brought their own syringe, but completely forgot to bring a knife. Make their way up 16 uncovered wooden steps to the second floor. Walk past Dylan's room. Enter Robert's room. Commit an assault of a sexual nature. Inject Robert with drugs. Attempt to suffocate him. And then stab him to death with a knife. Clean up the crime scene and leave without stealing anything, including Robert's wallet, phone, and wristwatch, which were all in his room. The three men said they heard a door chime on two occasions, which indicated the back door was being opened. Presumably, this chime would have sounded when the intruder entered the back door and when they exited. Why didn't the men investigate when they heard the door chime the first time? Were they mad because the intruder didn't talk to them? Like they can tolerate burglary, but not somebody being rude? What's more, what type of intruder would be okay with the door chime upon entering? Wouldn't this scare the intruder away, or at least motivate them to find a different exit? Now moving to the exculpatory evidence. Considering that there were three men in the house, theory number four could be true. That is, one or two men were involved in the murder, and one or two men were not involved. This is always a problem when multiple people are at a murder scene, and there is no evidence that points definitively to specific perpetrators. Next item, theory number one is technically possible. An unknown intruder may have entered the house and committed the murder. When considering all the evidence, do I think that at least one of the men was guilty of murder? Yes, I do, but there's no way to know who. The intruder theory makes no sense at all. Some people think that maybe Joseph's brother Michael was involved. He missed class on the night of the murder and allegedly burglarized the house later, but there's no other evidence of his involvement. I believe there is reasonable doubt in this case. This may be an example of safety in numbers. None of the men implicated any of the other men. They may have operated as a family and stuck together. There's no way to single one of them out and say he must have been the killer, and there's no way to rule out the intruder theory totally. What happened in this case this is just my opinion. I think that one of the men wanted to try out some BDSM-style sex with Robert. I don't think he was interested. I think this was an attack. Maybe the intent wasn't murder. Perhaps things just got carried away. Either way, Robert died as a result. The men who were not involved in the murder had to make a quick decision about whether they were going to give up one of their family members or stick together. They quickly synchronized their stories and never look back. What lessons can we learn in this case? Many murder cases involving a homicide in an occupied residence result in a conviction. If only one person was in the house with Robert when he was murdered, I'm fairly certain that individual would have been prosecuted and convicted. The problem in this case is that there were three men who had an incentive not to betray each other, and the intruder theory could not completely be ruled out. Prosecutors attempted to get a conviction for obstruction, conspiracy, and tampering with evidence, but simply did not have enough evidence to get a guilty verdict. It's clear that somewhere there's a person who knows what happened in this case, but I doubt this case will ever be solved. This murder case either involved an incredibly skilled yet aimless intruder with an astounding amount of luck, or a rock-solid conspiracy which was formed in a few minutes and has not wavered in all these years.
This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.